All right, the book of Daniel. We are beginning a new chapter tonight. I want to remind you of what's taking place in chapter 1 as we make our way into chapter 2. Daniel has been taken captive in a foreign land. He's being called by a pagan name unbefitting of his character. He purposes that he will not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. Therefore, he's keeping God's law and he's trusting God to handle the outcome. And finally, Daniel is exalted at the end of the chapter. And in all of this, we find a type of Christ in Daniel there in chapter 1. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to a foreign land. While here, he was called names unbefitting of who he was. They called him a deceiver, a wine-bibber, a glutton. He never defiled himself while he was here. He fulfilled the law of God. He trusted God the Father with the outcome. And finally, he was and is exalted on high. And as I closed last week, I mentioned that chapter 1 shows us three times how the Lord gave That's the key to the book. The Lord is in control. God gave Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. God gave Daniel favor with the prince of the eunuchs. And God gave the four Hebrew youths knowledge, wisdom, and skill. We must always remember that God is in complete control. He's ruling from His throne on the world stage. He knows exactly what's going on tonight all around the world. We can trust Him. God is the one who grants us favor. It's not because of our charisma. God is the one who blesses us. And the book of Daniel is about how great our God is. And of course, we're going to see this throughout our study in this book. So anyway, if you missed anything over the last seven weeks, please go back and listen. I believe it will benefit you. All right, let's move on to chapter 2 tonight. This is the longest chapter in the book. I'm not going to read the whole thing tonight, but let's just read verses 1 through 13. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time, because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed." Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. 
Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause the king was angry and very furious, and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. In verse 1, we read that this account is taking place in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. This can be problematic because it appears three years have elapsed by the close of chapter 1. How do we reconcile this? I'll spare you all the opinions. Amen. This is the most accepted one. Most conclude that this refers to the second year in which Nebuchadnezzar was ruling after his father died. There was a two-year period where Nebuchadnezzar ruled alongside with his father, and so it is believed that the two years here is talking about he is now ruling all by himself. And if this take is, is the correct one, then Daniel has been out of their school now for over a year. So it's not only the second year of the king's reign, but it's also the second year of Daniel's position before the king. And it was at this time we see that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Now we find dreams throughout the Old Testament, right? And we find them all the way up to the crucifixion of of Christ. God often used dreams and visions to reveal His will, to reveal prophetic events, and to warn and to guide people. The first time we see a vision show up in the Bible is when God came to Abram In Genesis 15.1, and he said, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And then God enters into a covenant with him in Genesis 15.8. The last time a vision shows up outside of the revelation was when Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.1, It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. That's the side of the visions. When we talk about dreams, the first time God speaks in a dream is in Genesis 20 and verse 3, when God told Abimelech, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken is a man's wife. And then the last time a dream is mentioned is when Pilate's wife, she goes to Pilate and and she says, You better be careful how you handle this man. Speaking of Christ, I've suffered many things in a dream. And so... I give you this timeline because we don't find an emphasis on dreams and visions after the book of Acts. Though I'm not suggesting they don't occur or can't occur in our day. Joel prophesied in Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions." And on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes Joel. He says, what you're seeing here, this is what Joel foretold of. The Spirit is being poured out. And and so I believe a large part of the dreams and visions in the New Testament was for the purpose of pinning the Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And I think we could say for establishing the church. Since the Word of God is complete, the church is firmly established, We should not expect anything new to be revealed from a dream or a vision. Nothing that has to be added to the Word of God. The Word of God is complete. 
Nothing that should take away from the Word of God. It is complete. However, I don't think we need to allow the charismatics to scare us away from the idea of dreams and visions. We are living in the last days. And, and therefore, if I'm going to say that God can't or won't speak through a dream or a vision, I'm saying that that Word of God isn't true. Is everybody with me? I know this is upsetting Baptist comfort levels. Uh, and, and some of this may just be how we, we term things. You know, sometimes maybe it's semantics. I don't know. But for example, we've all heard testimonies and we've probably said ourselves how God told me, God led me, God showed me, God made it clear. Couldn't we say that God is giving us a vision? He is showing us what to do. Certainly it, it helps to say that we were discerning something. And so... I'm often suspect (laughs) when when people say certain things, but I'm not in the habit of telling someone what they saw or heard or whatever they say um, wasn't what they say it was. Is everybody with me? Uh, I've made it a practice. Somebody comes in the office and they say, well, you know, I had a dream. Okay. And I'm content just to leave it there. I don't need to try to just throw a wet blanket on them and say, no, you're not, uh, you're, you're whack like a lot of our Baptist folks do. And, and so I just kind of keep my mouth shut, and, and it's between them and the Lord anyhow. Well, I can tell this is going over well tonight, amen. Um, yeah, well, and so uh, anyway, if they say it's of the Lord, and here's the key, if it does not contradict the Bible, then whatever, uh, do your thing. Keep dreaming. That sounded bad, though, didn't it? Amen. Overall, though, for what it's worth, I think it's best to to view the dreams and visions as more of the exception than the rule in our day because we do have a completed Word of God. And and I don't think you're going to receive one without the other. For example, if you're not in the Word of God, God's not just going to speak to you. I mean, we should know as God's children we have the Word of God. Um, and, And at no point will a dream or a vision ever usurp the Word of God. And we have to be settled on those things. And just because you had a dream doesn't mean it was from God. You may have just eaten a lot of junk. Amen. Well, I think, Evidently, we all have experienced that. But back to our text, as was common before the times of the gospel, Nebuchadnezzar receives a dream. It was obviously very troubling to him. It made a deep impression upon him. It it caused his spirit to be troubled, the Bible says. And he awakes from his sleep and he can't find rest again. I don't know if you ever had a dream like that, but he cannot find rest after this experience. The Hebrew word for troubled means to, to tap or to beat regularly. It means to agitate. Here's a man that is agitated at this continual dropping of what is taking place in his dream. And he wants some answers. Understandably, it's agitating his mind. This is no ordinary dream. And this is eating away at him. And so he goes to his magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and the Chaldeans. Show me the meaning of my dream. Without getting into the weeds here, these classes of people that I just spoke of that are listed there in verse 2 would be their wise men, if you will. 
In fact, you'll notice in verse 48 that Daniel is going to be placed over, it says, the, the, the wise men. It talks about the wise. And so these are the wise men in, in Babylon. And, and so these magicians, these astrologers, and these Chaldeans, especially those three, they are the ones which studied the stars. We, we see a lot of that today. And, and the astrologers did so to a greater degree than the magicians and the Chaldeans were considered the experts in the science of the stars. They claimed that by the position and influence of the stars, they could know what was going to transpire. I, I guess we could say it's similar to what we call um, the horoscopes today. That kind of a thing, although it would have been a lot more in-depth than those cheesy things that you might read that you ought not to. Amen. <laughs> All right. So they're called wise men. They studied the stars, and Babylon was located to the east of Judea, which is modern-day Iraq. And I find all that very interesting. Because when Jesus is, is after He's born, we read in Matthew 2, 1 and 2, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is He that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen His star in the east and are come to worship Him. Isn't that interesting? According to Strong's Concordance, the Greek word for wise men in Matthew means a magian or a member of the magi. It says, i.e., oriental scientist, by implication, a magician, which is what they're called in Daniel. So where did the wise men from the east get their information it, it, it could be because before this is over, Daniel's going to be promoted over them all. And, and I mentioned that already. He's going to be elevated above of all, all the wise men. The Persians will eventually take over the Babylonians, and the Persians were also located to the east. Their capital city was just a little bit further east on the border of modern-day Iraq and Iran. And so some 600 years later or so, the, the Magi would have had access to Daniel's prophecies. And several of these prophecies in the book of Daniel, are, they are very exact. Uh, so exact, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself and jump over to chapter 9. Let's focus on chapter 2. Amen. And so they're going to have all this. And, and could it be that the wise men from the east knew to be looking because of Daniel? Just a thought. I don't know how much to make of all this. It was interesting to me, so I shared it with you. Amen. And you can study it more if you want. Now, in verse 3, the king says, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Now, if you've been summoned by the king to interpret a dream, what might you ask him? What was it you dreamed? Right? I mean, if you're going to give the interpretation of something, it would be nice to know what it was he dreamed. They say, tell thy servants the dream, in verse 4, and we will show the interpretation. Just a quick note here, but you'll notice that verse 4 points out that the Chaldeans speak to the king in Syriac, which is a dialect of Aramaic. And from this point forward in, in, in Daniel until the end of chapter 7, instead of being written in Hebrew, it's written in Aramaic. Just a side note. There's varying opinions as to why, and the most frequent opinion that I came across is that chapters 2 through 7 is meant to hit the Gentile world, where chapters 8 and on are largely impacting Israel. And so maybe that's a reason, I don't know. Another popular reason that I won't bore you with here but maybe when we get to chapter 8, is that Daniel's using a literary device known as a chiasm. Come on now, give, give me some credit there. That's, that's deep stuff, amen. 
That makes me sound educated. One of the chiasms would be in Aramaic and one would be in Hebrew. You say, what is that? I can't really explain it yet, but I'll figure it out by the time we get to chapter 8. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> the most straightforward reason why is because Daniel was bilingual. All right, let's get back on track. The, the king is troubled by his dream. He wants an interpretation, so he calls for all of his wise men, or, or at least some of them, and they naturally say, tell us the dream, we'll, we'll show you what it means. There's only one problem, and it's a big problem, amen? Nebuchadnezzar tells him in verse 5, the thing is gone from me. Either he doesn't remember his dream or he refuses to tell his dream. Now, the reason for these two possibilities is how one interprets the phrase, the thing is gone from me. If, is, is the thing the dream itself, or is it the commandment which follows that if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you? Just a side note here, because every now and then I like to do this, but the, the modern versions have changed the wording here to clearly give the meaning, is, is that he is referring to the commandment and not the dream. The King James Bible says, the thing is gone from me. The ESV says, the word from me is firm. Obviously saying that the commandment that I've given, it's firm. And, and so, for what it's worth, I'm of the opinion that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know the dream. I, I think that's the most logical uh, interpretation here. And, and I think that he's forgotten the details. I believe that he could probably see some shades of it, but he doesn't know it clearly. And as of now, I believe that the word structure here lends itself to this being the most logical sense here because it says that the thing was gone from him, not gone forth from him. You know what I'm saying? Usually a commandment is gone forth from someone. But he says, the thing's gone from me. And so that, that's my opinion. You can do with it as you see fit. But I imagine most of us have had an experience where we know that we had a dream, but we don't really remember what it was we dreamed. That ever happened to you? I, I want to be careful with some of this because it may just be me, and then I, I look like some sort of lunatic. But we, we don't remember all the details, but then maybe we, we see something, we hear something, and then it, it, it brings, oh yeah, I had a dream last night. And, and then you start to get some more details. and all. I hope all this is making sense, but it, it's likely that this is what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. He may not remember it clearly, but he would know if, he was, if they were telling him the truth because it would start to come more into picture. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he, he wants the interpretation. He wants them to tell him what he dreamed. And if they can't, he says, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Well, you talk about walk, waking up on the wrong side of the bed, amen? I mean, I, I, I've had dreams I can't remember, but I wouldn't go this far. You know, Adrian, you better tell me. He counters that in verse 6 by saying, But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Now, now why is he doing this? He's certainly putting them to test, isn't he? And, and I don't know that maybe Nebuchadnezzar is starting to think they're all frauds. I, I'm just, I don't know. If y'all are so wise, then tell me what I dreamed in the first place. It'd be like contacting a psychic who says, give me your name and birthday. Which I've heard they do. I've never called one. But I did a Google search. That's what it told me. Why don't you tell me my name and birthday if you're such a good psychic? 
give me your credit card number. Why don't you know my credit card? Anyway. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. Why, why am I paying you good money if you don't even know? You're on the king's payroll. Ultimately, we know these events are falling out this way in order that the one true God will be glorified above all the false gods in Babylon and above all those that are called wise. In verse 7, the wise men answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation of it. I give them credit. They're confident. Amen. They're confident they can do this and interpret, but they know that they can't reveal. It's kind of like being a weatherman. I just thought of this. Amen. When I was a weatherman, it's like they told you, you don't really know what's going to happen, but just act like you do. Amen. Ah, it's going to snow five inches between this hour. Are you confident? Yes, sir. No snow. Well, I couldn't really reveal. I just, anyway. In verse 8, the king is basically saying, quit stalling. You're just trying to buy more time because you're hoping all this will calm down and this will pass by and I'll just kind of forget about it all. But the king here, he is standing firm. And in verse 9, he says, But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. Referring back to what he said at the end of verse 5. Now, the king, he's growing even more impatient and even more suspect of their abilities. The rest of verse uh, the rest of the verse says, For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. You know what he's saying here? He's, what, what he's saying is, you're agreeing together to give me faulty information. I know what you're up to. Quit stalling. Give me the interpretation. Show me the dream. Now, I disagree with his attitude and consequences. His reasoning, though, makes sense. If you can tell me what I dream, then I can trust you to give me the interpretation. Well, yeah, I should say so. Amen. If you can tell me what I dream without me telling you, I trust that you probably understand what it is. So I kind of like that. But understandably, the Chaldeans reply in verse 10, There's not a man upon earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things as any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. They continue in verse 11, and it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so I give them credit. They at least acknowledge their limitations. And for the most part, what they say is true. This is an unreasonable request. Wouldn't you agree? And then... There is nobody on earth who would be able to know what another man dreamed without them being told. Where they get off track, obviously, is they're assuming that their false gods know. That's the problem. And ultimately, that's what God is working here. He, he's finally getting them to the place where He wanted them all along. There is no man on earth. They're, your false gods cannot do this. And, and of course, we're building up here to later in the chapter, but... They also acknowledge their poly, polytheistic gods could not be among men. Whose dwelling is not with flesh, they say. However, our God does manifest Himself, amen, among men. In fact, God robed Himself in flesh for the purpose of dwelling among us, amen, being our Savior. And now we know that He indwells every believer by His Spirit. The fact that they're saying only the gods can know 
unbeknownst to them, they are setting the stage for the only living God to get all the glory when Daniel is able to give the king what the dream is and what the interpretation is. We'll see that later on. And of course, this is through special revelation by God who is involved in our life. You see the difference? Babylon gods, no, they they are not concerned with earth and man and they do not dwell in flesh and they're above us and God says, I'll come to you. Anyway, we could preach that all night. Well, sound reasoning isn't enough to calm a king down who desperately needs some anger management skills. Verse 12, For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. How'd you like to work for this guy? Amen. This is a terrible boss, by the way. I don't don't know if you're catching that. So in verse 13, the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. They sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Now, obviously, they're not even there to stand up for themselves. This king is something else. So he just wants to round up all the wise men that are throughout his empire and let's just kill them all. Once again, we find Daniel going through a trial. And that's what I want you to see tonight for our application. Because I've just given you a lot of just factual stuff. Daniel is now, his life is on the line, right? I mean, he's going to die unless something changes. And so Daniel here, he's in another trial. But I want you to pick up on this, that God had prepared Daniel for this trial back in chapter 1. Remember that Daniel trusted God in his diet to come out fairer and fatter than those who ate of the king's meat. And I said during those messages that, in a sense, he's proving God, while God is proving him. And so... God was building His faith. Would you agree with that? He's showing Himself strong on Daniel's behalf. And He's building His his faith in in making it through trials. And the way God orchestrates this, it is something that only an all-knowing God who knows the end from the beginning can orchestrate. He, he trusted God. He, he, he's got faith building. And why? God was preparing Daniel for an even greater trial in chapter 2. Daniel's life is on the line. And what we can learn from all of this is that God prepares trials. God doesn't waste trials. The trials that God brings us to in our life, they have a purpose. They are designed for us to learn how great our God is and how we can trust Him no matter the circumstances. Whatever trial you may be going through tonight, God has already prepared you for it. You have learned 
about God through your past trials because God wants you to be strengthened for the trials to come. 1 Corinthians 10.13, There hath no temptation, which is speaking of a trial, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted or tested above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of people stop reading. But there's more to it. It says that ye may be able to bear it. You don't just escape it. That you may be able to bear it, which means that you can undergo this hardship. And if you'll learn this in your life, you'll be able to look back on those trials, on those difficult circumstances, and you'll be able to realize God was building my faith. God was preparing me. God was moving me in a direction for this hour, and I am prepared by God to go through this. Not only are you prepared presently, but good news is you're still being prepared for future trials. (laughs) Amen. Listen, God knows what is going to take place in your life. He's all-knowing. God is faithful. God is helping you to be prepared by orchestrating trials for our good and for His glory. Leading us up to the greatest trial, the last enemy, death. How many times I've been at the, the bedside of someone dying. This is why we put our faith in Christ. Right here. Because we know our life is coming to an end. This body will die. And God is preparing us all the while. James 1, 2, and 4, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Huh? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be entire and wanting nothing. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, wherein ye greatly rejoice, huh? Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you, but rejoice. Huh? Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Why does God do this? Why do the prosperity gospel preachers try to get us to believe that God won't do this? Why does God take us through these things? Why does He put us through a trial to prepare us for another trial, to prepare us for another trial? And we go through them throughout our whole life. What is God up to? Why should we be joyful about this? Well, I submit to you it's because God is working to conform us into the image of Christ. What a blessing. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10 that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. 
when we approach trials correctly, now get this, because this is what we're going to see for the chapter's over. When we approach trials correctly, what we find is they minimize us and they magnify God. That's what we're going to find. And I'd ask you to read the rest of Daniel chapter 2 this week, so next time you're, you're in tune with where we're heading here. And, and so this life isn't about us. It's all about God. That's why we're still here. Right? We're to magnify Him. In the meantime, He's conforming us along the way so that we can better magnify Him. And so this is all about Him. God uses insurmountable trials to remind us of this along the way. Not the kind of trials where you can go down to the bank and sign a loan. Right? Insurmountable trials that only God will be the one who can come through for you. And He's doing that to conform you, to build your faith, and to prepare you. We'll have to leave it here in verse 13, amen? And like the old television series, I I guess we can say, what's going to happen to Daniel and his friends? Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion. So come back next week. We'll see what happens to Daniel. But understand why God puts you through these things. And understand, He's all-knowing. He's not going to harm you. I have a note in my Bible. I don't remember the passage where Pastor Williams said once. I wrote down what he said. He said, God may hurt you, but He will not harm you. Interesting. And I I think it had something to do with um, how a shepherd sometimes will have to break the leg of a sheep to keep it from wandering astray. And it'll teach that sheep, you stay by the shepherd. Anyway, I don't know why that popped in my head, but there you go. All right, let's pray.